Well, good morning, Grace Baptist Chapel. As Ryan mentioned a moment ago, my name is Derek Bass, and we, the Bass family, are some of your missionaries uh, to the Netherlands, and ultimately, as I'll share a little bit more tonight, to the world through our students. Uh, But it is a delight to, to be with you this morning and this evening. It's a delight to open up God's Word with you this morning. And uh, I want to ask God to help us. We're in Exodus chapter 15. Uh, We'll actually be focused on uh, the hymn that's here, the song by the sea in verses 1 through 18. Uh, But let's pray, let's ask the Lord's help, and then we'll dive in. Our great Father and God, we give you thanks this morning that we can open up your word. I thank you for the privilege uh, to get to serve this church this morning this church that serves and cares for and loves us all throughout the year. Uh, Lord, may you use me. May you use this passage to minister to us this morning. May we be, maybe, may we be clear this morning that we are ultimately being shepherded by you, our Lord Jesus Christ. May we hear your voice, our good shepherd, as we listen and sit under the word today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So the title of the sermon this morning is A Song for the Journey, Singing God's Power to Save from Conversion to the New Jerusalem. And again, we're in Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 18. Now, songs are powerful. That's probably a big uh, understatement uh, that I'm making this morning. Songs are powerful, connecting our hearts and our head, tapping into our emotions, pressing poetically everyday realities as well as life-changing moments into our very souls, who we are. And they're also memorable, which is nice, especially when they carry such great truths. The power of a song is evident in the way they shape our identity, our worldviews, and, and not just individually, but, but corporately as well. You can think about national anthems or other patriotic song, songs that we sing and how those might stir you. Or perhaps the fight song of your favorite college. You know, when your team wins that, you know, has that game-winning touchdown and the song rings out and you get a little bit more emotionally stirred maybe than we should. Am I right? We can think about iconic songs, cultural songs that shape our culture. I think about particular worship songs and how different congregations that I've been a part of or I've visited, you know, might sing any number of songs, but there are certain songs that I've seen that certain congregations lean into a little bit more. Maybe that's In Christ Alone or any number of other hymns or songs, but you can just feel corporately everybody leaning into that song more so. Well, Exodus 15, 1 through 18 that we're looking at this morning is fundamentally an identity-shaping song. It's meant to form a people who will worship and serve the living God. For that is the purpose of our existence. This song drives this glorious reality home. So what I'm going to do here as we look at the text, I'm going to back up just a few verses, and I'm going to begin in chapter 14, verse 30, 
And then I'm going to read through chapter 15, verse 21, just so you get a little bit on both sides of the song. And I'll fill in some gaps as well. So this comes on the heels of the great Red Sea deliverance. God has brought his people through the sea on dry ground. He's crushed Pharaoh and Egypt, the army of Egypt in the Red Sea. And we read in verse 30, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so that the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in His servant Moses. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord saying, I will sing to the Lord for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider He has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song and He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise Him. My Father's God and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down in the deep like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. Then the enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab and the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the peoples of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, 
for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. This is the word of the Lord. The song summarizes the whole book of Exodus and beyond in 18 short poetic verses. The Lord God is redeeming His people and bringing them to dwell with Him on His holy mountain. So this is a piece of poetry, a poem, a song embedded within the prose narrative of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. It's not the only such poem or song that's embedded. And one of the things that we see regularly when you read the text over and over and over and over again is that these poems, in this case this song, although at times a little bit hard to interpret and a little enigmatic, they actually cast or refract light on the surrounding narrative. They actually help us to understand the sweep of the whole book, and that's the case here with the song by the sea. Because at this point, the Lord has redeemed His people from Egypt in the Exodus. And the book of Exodus concludes with the erection of the tabernacle and the glory of Yahweh coming down upon that tabernacle. And this is spoken of in the song. In fact, I would submit that what's talked about in the psalm actually points beyond the boundaries of Exodus 40. Even beyond the boundaries of the book of Kings and the, the erection of the permanent structure, the temple of Solomon, where also God's glory came down. The song is embedded in the unfolding narrative of God's promised redemption. The song illuminates the gospel storyline from Genesis 3.15 and the surrounding narrative also interprets the song. The book of Exodus continues and answers the book of Genesis. Whereas Genesis ends with Israel in exile in Egypt, that's exactly where Exodus begins. And whereas Genesis 1.28 commanded the original couple to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, Exodus chapter 1 verse 7 begins by telling us that Abraham's offspring have been fruitful. They're multiplying and they're now filling the land of Egypt. That is an intentional echo of the command now promised in the Abrahamic covenant coming to fruition while God's people are in exile. This is what creates the crisis of a new Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. Whereas Genesis 3.15 promised that a male seed or offspring from Eve would crush the serpent's head, Exodus chapter 1 closes with Pharaoh serving as the seed of the serpent and acting a plan, a diabolical plan to have all of the male seed, all of the male Israelite boys cast in to the Nile River. It, it appears at the end of Exodus chapter 1 that the seed of the serpent is overwhelming the seed of promise, the seed of the woman. It looks like game over, really, for the people of God and the promise of God. But then Exodus 2 gives hope by means of a baby in a basket. Moses delivered from the genocidal floodwaters of Pharaoh. As Adam and Eve rebelled against the Lord God, resulting in their being expelled, exiled east of Eden, exiled from the presence of, of the Lord 
Exodus describes, the movement of Exodus describes how the Lord God raised up a Savior, Moses, who would lead his people out of Egypt in the Exodus and bring his people to himself at Sinai where he would come and ultimately come down, bring his people into covenant with him, and then ultimately come down, as I mentioned a second ago, his glory would come down, moving from Sinai to the tabernacle to dwell in the midst of his people. You see, by the end of the book of Exodus, that which has happened to Eve and Adam back in Genesis 3 seems to be reversed. They were exiled east of Eden, and now God has brought his people redemptively to himself, and he is coming to dwell in their midst. And the song points, I said a moment ago, beyond the boundaries, I think, of Exodus 40 and the Lord God's glory coming down on the tabernacles. It speaks of God bringing his people all the way to himself, planting them on his very own mountain, his abode, the sanctuary that his hands established. It points to the conquest of the land, that's the second half of the song, and it points beyond that, fulfilling the Lord God's promises to Abraham of making him a numerous people and providing a promised place to be with them. So the big idea of this morning's sermon is this. The Lord, Jesus, the incomparable God, demonstrates his kingship by delivering his people from slavery so that we might praise him forever in his presence. Let me say, let me say that again. The Lord Jesus, the incomparable God, demonstrates his kingship by delivering his people from slavery so that we might praise him forever in his presence. Now, we're going to unpack that big idea of the song under two smaller points, the first being singing God's power to save. Singing God's power to save. That's verses 1 through 2. And then point number 2 in a second will be singing until we reach the new Jerusalem. Verses 13 through 18. Singing until we reach the new Jerusalem. So first, singing God's power to save, verses 1 through 12. This first big movement of the song poetically retells God's salvation of his people from slavery in Egypt. Fundamentally, how God fought and destroyed his enemy at the Red Sea. The verses, or I'm sorry, chapters 4 through 13 detail the ten plagues the Lord God used and brought upon Egypt and Pharaoh to rescue his people from the hand of Pharaoh and Egypt. But Exodus 14 declares how and why the Lord further hardened the heart of Pharaoh and his people to then pursue Israel out to the sea. Like you may remember the story, and this may have struck you as strange at some point, as we read of the tenth plague, and it's built, it's 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 talked about in chapter eleven. It occurs, and then is there's the liturgy in chapter twelve. Right? God has redeemed His people by the tenth plague. He has brought judgment upon Egypt, upon Pharaoh, the death of the firstborn son. There, well, Pharaoh is demanding by that point, get out. Get out, and they're out. They've been redeemed, as it were, from slavery. They're no longer under the thumb of Pharaoh. 
And, and you, it may have struck you as odd in the past in reading Exodus, the chapter 14, like three times right off the bat, speaks of the Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart, hardening the heart of the Egyptians to go out now and get them at the Red Sea. It's like, what more do you need to do, Lord? And the text is unambiguous. It's crystal clear. He is aiming to bring Pharaoh, the same Pharaoh, or the, well, the second, the, the Pharaoh after the one who was throwing his, the, the, the seed of Israel into the river, into the Nile, brings Pharaoh and he brings his army out to the Red Sea to get glory over him so that his name might be known among all the nations. And this song is a response of the redeemed to glorify God and glory in the Lord through singing and exalting the greatness and the glory of our God. Singing the power to save. We see in verses 1 through 2 that this is a very personal thing. Verses 1 through 2 summarize what verses 3 through 12 will more fully unpack, emphasizing as no other part of the song the very nature of God's salvation. Moses declares, Yahweh is my strength, my song, my salvation, my God. Friends, salvation is personal. It's not hypothetical. You and I need to be saved from sin, death, hell, and the devil. But we also need to be saved from the very wrath of God that we deserve because of our sins. And the salvation that Moses is singing here of here is, again, not hypothetical. It's personal. It's experienced. This is my God. My God. My strength. My salvation. My song. And, the, and this first portion continues to sing as I'd like to say, the gospel according to Moses, the Yahweh is a warrior. And that might be a new idea to you or a striking picture of God. But this text declares in verse 3 that the Lord is a warrior. And when we look back in chapter 14, in verse 14 of chapter 14, when the people struggle and they doubt and they rail against Moses as they're afraid as Pharaoh and the army are bearing down, Moses says, you only need to be still and see the salvation of our Lord. The Lord will fight for you. Later in the song, the Egyptians declare the same thing. The Lord is fighting for Israel. He fights against his enemies for the good of his people. This divine warrior motif is literally all over Scripture. And verses 4 through 12 unpack this reality. The poetry of the song functions through an economy of words and figurative language to speak of the same concrete realities of what we, what we read of back in chapter 14. It's stated that the Lord cast or throws Pharaoh's chariots into the sea. 
verses 1 and 4, that the Lord's right hand shatters the enemy, verse 6. The blast of his nostrils, clearly anthropomorphic language, as the Lord doesn't have nostrils. This is poetic. This is descriptive. This is vivid. The blast of his nostrils caused the waters to pile up. The Lord blew with his wind, and the waters covered them. The Lord stretched out his right hand, and the earth swallowed them up. Let's take a little closer look here. This language of the Lord casting or throwing Pharaoh's chariots, his Pharaoh's military might into the sea echoes to the previous Pharaoh's arrogant and genocidal command to have all the male newborn Israelite sons thrown into the Nile. You see, that was the command at the end of chapter 1, throw all the babies into the Nile. And as Moses sings of God's deliverance, he speaks of how uh, actually it's Yahweh who has thrown Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea. Yahweh's right hand strikes the enemies. Throwing Pharaoh and his army into the sea is also Yahweh's right hand shattering the enemy. It's not referring to a separate event. It's, it's saying the same thing with a little different nuance. And the language is very similar to what we find in Isaiah 51 verse 9 that refers back to the Exodus as the Lord hacking Rahab to pieces and piercing the sea monster. Those those ideas come from this song as well as from the narrative of the book of Exodus. This, This serpentine creature or figure is symbolic of Pharaoh. Pharaoh would have had a a serpent on his big hat. Again, Genesis 3.15, seed of the serpent, seed of the woman. This is a big showdown. What's happening here in chapters 14 and what's being sung of in chapter 15 is bringing all this together. The blast of his nostrils caused the waters to pile up. This is referring to what happened back in Exodus 14, 21 and following by means of Moses' outstretched arm with the staff and the east wind blowing all night long. Again, it's poetically describing the same event. The Lord blew with his wind and the waters covered them. Yahweh is fighting for his people. And this answers Egypt's arrogant boasts of destruction and plundering from verse 9. Look at verse 9. The enemy said, I will pursue. This is the heart of Pharaoh and the army. I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. And the Lord blows with his wind. And the waters covered them. Yahweh stretched out his right hand and the earth swallowed them. Verse 12. This swallowing echoes back to Exodus 7, 8 through 12. You may remember the story when in one of the many instances of Aaron and Moses coming before Pharaoh, Aaron cast his staff to the ground and it becomes, some texts say a snake, some a serpent. It's, it's literally like a dragon. It's a tanim. It's, it's this monster Again, it's this, this serpentine uh, 
motif that I was talking about a second ago. But you remember what happens. Aaron casts the staff to the ground. It becomes this, actually, it's more than a snake. It's bigger. It's probably more uh, scary. Uh, and what, what, a, what a Pharaoh's musician, uh, musicians, magicians do? They throw their staffs out there too by their own magic arts. And theirs become these sea monster dragons. And then what happens? Go, go, go. Right? Aaron's staff swallows up all of these other staffs. And there in the narrative, that's foreshadowing what we read of here, where God's destruction, his judgment upon Pharaoh, that great serpentine figure, the seed of the serpent, is described as God swallowing them up. So whereas the Pharaoh at the end of Exodus 1 commanded his people to cast the male Israelites into the Nile, the Lord throws Pharaoh and his army into the sea. And as Aaron's dragon staff swallowed up the dragon staffs of Pharaoh's magician, the Lord swallowed up Pharaoh, that dragon serpent in the sea. Yahweh God's salvation of his people through judgment at the sea is tapping into that same glorious promise that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. God is working through Moses, has crushed the seed of the serpent, and is delivering his people. In 1 Corinthians 10, or I should say 1 Corinthians 10, connects the people of God passing through the water of the sea with baptism in which we are submerged into the water, buried with Christ at his death, and raised with him to new life. Do you you see? The sea was judgment and death for the Egyptians. But God brought his people through the waters of judgment, much as he did Noah back in Genesis 6-9. through Hence, The sea crossing points to the cross of Christ, the judgment of God on sin, sinners, and that great enemy of our souls, the devil himself. At the cross, all of God's judgment for the sins of all who would believe was placed on Christ. Jesus bore in his body on the tree the infinite wrath of God, the sea of the judgment of God. But in that very same event, we who trust or are trusting in Christ have salvation from our sins. We are released from bondage. Our our enemy is defeated and we ultimately, uh, our, our enemy is defeated and will ultimately be destroyed. And Jesus took God's judgment for our sins, passing through the waters of death, the sea of baptism. And, and coming through these waters on the other side is life from the dead. It's resurrection. It is salvation through judgment to new life with God. And all of this causes the redeemed to worship, to wonder in awe who is like Yahweh, who is like our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the double question here in the text provokes the obvious answer. No one. No one. We are saved powerfully and graciously by God. 
And it is so clearly all of Him. We have been saved. We see that no one is like the Lord. He is simply incomparable. Then there is nothing left for us to do then except to sing, to, to worship, to sing of His greatness, to sing of His power to save. Verses 1 through 12 are all about the Lord's great salvation of His people that is simultaneously the destruction of His enemy. God's glory in salvation through judgment, a salvation from Pharaoh, from slavery, for us, from sin. But Yahweh's salvation isn't simply from sin or even from wrath. But it is a salvation to a restored relationship with our glorious Creator God. Covenant. Fellowship. And being restored to to rightly praise our Redeemer in His presence forever. And that's what the second half of the song is getting at. Singing until we reach the new Jerusalem. Singing until we reach the new Jerusalem. So the big transition here is that Israel is moving out of the sea. They're delivered from judgment. And that experience is to form them, is to shape them and help them to keep trusting the Lord. The Lord of the Exodus, much the same way that the cross and the empty tomb brothers and sisters, should form us and shape us and help us to keep trusting the Lord no matter what. So we see in verses 12 through 13, the Lord delivers in order to shepherd His people to a holy pasture land. You can see in the language there that the Lord is leading and He is guiding His redeemed The language is that of a shepherd leading his flock. It's, it's very similar to Psalm 23. The Lord is our shepherd. And the Lord's holy abode described here or mentioned here in verse 13 quite literally is His holy pasture land. A, a feeding area, as it were, that a shepherd would lead his sheep to along the journey. This holy abode referred to in verse 13 is probably the other side of the sea where they, were, where they broke into song. Uh, but it's also very likely that it aims to what we'll look at in a second in verse 17, Yahweh's holy mountain. Thus at the other side of the sea they sing, and at every stop along the way and between every stops to Yahweh's holy mountain they should be singing. Yahweh's power to save. Verses 14 through 16, we see Yahweh's awesome power grips the inhabitants of Canaan. These verses reference three geographical areas in and around Canaan. The Lord's power to save in the Exodus will overwhelm. This is the promise. They'll overwhelm those who are in the land. And all you need to do from a biblical standpoint is think of Joshua chapter 2 and Rahab the prostitute and when the spies are sent into the land and how she risks her life to, to house and to hide these spies. Why? Because of her own goodwill? Because she's a lovely lady? No, 
because she had heard what the God of Israel, what Yahweh had done to Pharaoh and done to Egypt, and talks about how it's caused their hearts to melt. It's caused them to be in terror. The very same language, Joshua 2, comes from this song. It's as if Rahab is quoting this song. We've, we've heard about your God, and we are in terror. And in faith, she houses the spies. And you know the rest of that story, hopefully. In verse 5b, they sing that Egypt went down into the depths like a stone. Here in verse 16b, they sing, because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Now, what's going on? In the song, Moses is comparing God's redemption of his people at the Exodus to the promise of his redemption and salvation of his people in the conquest, right? He makes Pharaoh and his army go down, 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 down in the deep like a stone. And he promises, when I bring you into the land, they will be immovable. They will be like a stone, right? He's connecting his acts of redemption one to another. This happens all over the Bible. But this is, this is aimed to foster faith, to, to, to raise their awareness of God's greatness and strengthen their resolve to trust Him no matter what. The salvation of Yahweh at the sea prepares them for His salvation in the land. By sea or by land, the Lord is a man of war. He is fighting for His people against His enemies. The Exodus prepares them for the conquest. They are intimately connected. Yahweh and His awesome deeds strike terror and trembling in the hearts of the people of the land. But it is not the people themselves. The, the text is very clear. It's not the people themselves. It's the Lord. And, and this ought to be very encouraging to us because I think there's times where we can cower or we can struggle because we're not that great. We're not that impressive. We're not that strong. And somehow it causes our faith to fail that we're not that great. But, but this is the point of the song. You're not great. And Israel wasn't great. But our God is great. So look away from yourself to our great and glorious triune God. Look to our Lord Jesus Christ, our great Savior, our great King, our great Shepherd, the great Shepherd of our souls. as faith-filled and as strong as this song is, when we read on in this chapter, they're not three days journey into the wilderness, and guess what? They're already grumbling against Moses and against the Lord. But look again at verses 17 through 18. This is the climax of the song. And this is what I'm talking about that I, I believe points beyond, beyond Exodus 40. It, I think it points beyond um, 2 Samuel, and it points beyond 1 Kings 8. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. The Lord, King forever over his people in his sanctuary. 
this song concludes, climaxing in the glorious promise that our saving shepherd warrior king is bringing us all the way home to plant us on his own mountain, his abode, the sanctuary his hands have made. And that Yahweh, who is a man of war, will rule and reign over us forever and ever. He saves and reigns. He shepherds his people from holy resting place to resting place, but he is ultimately leading us all the way home. All the way home beyond Solomon's temple, I believe. All the way home to this resting place, to the new creation, the new Jerusalem. What Hebrews 12 calls a mountain that can't be shaken. The salvation of the Lord God is not just a salvation from our enemies, as I mentioned earlier, and from His judgment to come, but it is unto Himself. It is to know, love, adore, and worship our living God. I mentioned it in brief at the beginning, but Exodus 25-40, through those chapters are fundamentally all about the building of the tabernacle. God taking up His dwelling presence in the midst of His people, in the midst of His redeemed. It's about His glory, His fiery presence scorching the top of Sinai, moving from Sinai to the tabernacle. Coming down on His newly formed tabernacle. And with such brilliance that Moses can't even enter into the tent. The song is anticipating this. It is. But again, I think it's anticipating much more. The language is anticipating not simply God coming down to dwell in the presence of His people, but bringing them to His mountain to dwell in His presence. This points beyond His glory on the tabernacle, on the temple. And it even points beyond the glory of God on Christ and His incarnation, John 1.14. And I think it points beyond where we're at currently in redemptive history, where the church is described as God's temple in Ephesians 2 and 1 Peter 2. Biblically speaking, we, the church, Grace Baptist Chapel is a local expression of this glorious reality that, that you are the temple of the living God. God's presence dwells and abides in the midst of His church in a special way that He doesn't dwell in the midst of a single Believer. This is glorious. This is marvelous. But I think the song is pointing even beyond this to the ultimate destination of the new heavens and the new earth of, of Revelation 21 and 22, the, the new Jerusalem, that great and glorious temple city in which we will be in His presence and we will see Him and we will worship Him forever and ever. Friends, this is a song for the journey. A song to form the people of God and strengthen our resolve to trust in the Lord no matter what. Prior to the song and the Red Sea deliverance, Exodus 14, 10-14, the people rebel against the Lord. They saw the enemy and they cried out against Moses and against the Lord. But the Lord fights for them, destroys Pharaoh and his army in the sea. And at the end of Exodus 14, I began the sermon reading this. The text says 
that the Israelites feared Yahweh. This is dramatic and powerful. And that they trusted him and in his servant Moses. And then they sing this song and then they ride off into the sunset. Right? Right? No. No, as we keep reading, Exodus 15, 22 and following tells that they're three days journey without water, which is of course a big deal. I've never been three days without water. It's a big deal. But then they begin to grumble against Moses. And as you read carefully Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and into Deuteronomy, this, this grumbling. Friends, if you've tuned out, tune back in. This, this grumbling is significant. They begin to grumble against Moses and against the Lord. And, and this grumbling ultimately characterizes them. And, and I want to say something real quick because it may be a little bit confusing. Israel's grumbling in the wilderness. And if you read the Psalms much, you read the lament Psalms, the complaint Psalms. And, and there seems to be sometimes where, like David seems to be grumbling. So, so, so this is bad. They're grumbling in the wilderness against Moses, against, against the Lord. This is bad. But, you know, David grumbling at the Lord isn't bad. Well, there's a difference in grumbling, right, about God and complaining about God and in bringing your complaints and your burdens to God. And the difference is life and death. The difference is belief and unbelief. And Moses is going to go on and he's going to characterize their grumbling, the grumbling of this first generation, as unbelief. And when you trace this language of grumbling, one of the next big landing points is in Numbers 14, when they're commanded from Kadesh Barnea to go up and take the land, which is what the second half of the song was all about. You've just experienced this glorious salvation of the Lord of the Red Sea, you can be assured that he's going to take care of these people in the promised land. And what happens? The spies come back. Caleb and Joshua, the two guys that everybody names their kids after, they give a, a, a report that, let's go up. The Lord will do it. And the other ten bring back a bad report, a, a report of unbelief and rebellion. And that generation spends one year for every day that the spies spied out the land. They spend 40 years in the wilderness in judgment until they all die off before the next generation takes them into the land. And then Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 1 as he's retelling the story characterizes that first generation as unbelievers. Friends, this is important because this is the theme that the book of Hebrews fundamentally takes up. Don't be like the first generation that experienced something of the salvation of the Lord and going out in the Exodus, but they did not enter into his rest. And I don't mean to be simplistic here this morning, but it seems to me that the problem was they stopped singing. Did you hear me? It seems to me that the problem is that they stopped singing. It seems to me that they stopped singing the gospel. Is it possible that the lesson that we need to learn this morning from the song by the sea embedded in the Torah and the Exodus generations dying in unbelief in the wilderness is that we need to keep on singing. 
We need to keep on singing our triune God's power to save. Our God is a man of war, destroying His enemy, our enemies. Jesus crushed the serpent's head at the cross and He's returning again in Revelation 19 on a war horse with a sword coming out of His mouth. He will bring justice and judgment upon all who stand opposed to His rule and reign. Salvation belongs to our God. He redeems us and He puts a song of redemption in our mouths to sing of it. But is is part of perseverance singing? Do we have a warning that a failure to be a doxological Christian could result in damning unbelief? And I'm not talking about justification by singing. I'm talking about true faith in our great saving shepherd king the Lord Jesus, producing in us a heart of praise. And I'm also talking about the fact that God appoints not only the end, but He also appoints the means to the end. And if God has appointed our final salvation, then He is also giving us worship. He's given us songs to sing of Him and to Him. And these songs are designed to stir our affections for Him. And they're designed to stir our affections for Him in all the difficulties of life. Like when we've been in the wilderness three days with no water. Have you ever been there? Metaphorically speaking, three days in the wilderness with no water? Wanting to blame God for your situation? Feeling like life was better? Ah. Oh. I hate to even say this, but feeling like, like life was better before you were a Christian? Like it's just harder now that you're a Christian? What do you do? I'll tell you what I do. I sing. And if I can't sing, and there have been days like that, there have been Sundays like that, where you roll in on, to church on Sunday, and I can't sing. Things in life are so heavy that I can't sing. It's not that I don't want to sing, I I can't sing. But then I begin to look around at others singing. Or if I'm by myself, then I just listen. I listen to the gospel and song until I can sing. The Lord taught me from an early age of following Christ that sometimes the only thing that would move my heart when it was feeling hard or just distant from the Lord is the gospel in song. And he would wake me up to the glorious reality of my salvation from sin, death, hell, and the devil that I couldn't see because I was letting my situation dominate my feelings. But then I could see through that my conquering shepherd king, my Lord Jesus, Friends, the song by the sea is a song of deliverance and a promise of future deliverance so that we might dwell in Yahweh's presence, that we might glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And judging from the songs of Revelation, and they even reference, John even references the song of Moses there, you can be assured that when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we'll, we'll We'll have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Let's pray.
And let's sing. And let's continue to sing. And let's not stop singing until we're all the way home. Our Father, we thank You for Your great grace to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You that You have made us in such a way that You have made us to be worshipers of You. And You give us all throughout Your Word and You, in, and you move us even today to write new and, and even perhaps better songs at times, not from Your Word, but great songs of praise that help us to distill the Gospel and think on the Gospel as we wrestle through this life and through many difficulties. Give us grace to persevere in faith as we persevere in singing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.